The Guardian. Hello, it's Wednesday, June the 30th. I'm Mike Duran on today's podcast. Justice Secretary Ken Clark gets tender on crime. But just banging up more and more people for longer without actively seeking to change them is, in my opinion, what you would expect of Victorian England. The boss of a British chemical company could face extradition to the US after his former firm admitted million-dollar bribes to sell toxic fuel additives to Iraq. What's happened so far is, is that the company, as a corporate entity, has admitted paying bribes. How Ghana's progress in the World Cup could help end xenophobia in South Africa. They've actually come to understand, you know, that this World Cup is about Africa, not just about South Africa. And they have also shown as much passion in trying to solidify that ideal. And King of the Chat Show, Larry King, is to quit after a quarter of a century. Guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. First, after years of being told that prison works by the Tories, the new Tory-led coalition now tells us that prison doesn't work. Speaking at the Centre for Crime and Justice Studies, Ken Clark said that jails fail to turn criminals into law-abiding citizens. Criticising the growth of the prison population, he's put forward a panoply of reforms to make the judicial system more effective. There are some very nasty people who commit nasty offences, They must be punished and communities protected. My first priority, as I keep saying, is the safety of the British public. That's what the department's for. But just banging up more and more people for longer without actively seeking to change them is, in my opinion, what you would expect of Victorian England. And it's time we focused on what's right for today's communities. Too often... Prison has proved a costly and ineffectual approach that fails to turn criminals into law-abiding citizens. Indeed, in all our experience in the worst prisons, it produces tougher criminals. Justice Secretary Ken Clark. He's not promising to cut the prison population, but as The Guardian's Home Affairs editor Alan Travis explains, he wants cost-effective ways to end re-offending. Well, he says the jury's out on that question, whether prison works or not. But what's the, isn't it a very interesting moment, I think. It's the first time 17, 18 years we've had a senior politician in the government stand up in public and say that the uh, mantra of prison works, of sending more and more people to prison, ever since Michael Howard uh, stood before the Tory party conference in October 1993, was not necessarily the answer. And uh, Ken Clark has tried to tell the courts today and persuade them to start a long campaign to send not necessarily fewer people to prison, but be more intelligent about the way they use uh, sentencing and using prison more sparsely for the serious offenders as opposed to um, those who perhaps uh, offend most persistently. And in that respect, uh, we may see the first real stirrings of an attempt, serious attempt, to end what one former Director General of the Prison Service called the court's love affair with custody. Do we know who the people are under these proposals who will escape a custodial sentence? Well, I don't think what's, I don't think anyone's going to escape a custodial sentence. I think what uh, Ken Clark's trying to do is got to 
Come into office as uh, Justice Secretary, has got a record prison population of 85,000 in England and Wales. It's uh, projected to rise to 96,000 within the next three or four years. And he has a £4 billion uh, jail building programme, which he can't afford. And what he's trying to do is trying to halt the rise, that rise in prison numbers. So I don't think we'll be seeing thousands of people being let out, as some of the newspaper headlines uh, try to pretend this morning, or that necessarily fewer people be going to prison. But what I think is the rate of increase of, of rise in the number of the jail population he's hoping to arrest, so he doesn't have to build and spend so much money building jails. At the same time, he has an aspiration. He thinks that would give a chance to actually begin to do some proper work inside prisons and with those when they leave prisoners, short sentences prisoners in particular, he says, very little real work's going on with them to try and prevent them uh, re-offending. There's some really scary re-offending rates, 60% plus, and he thinks that if he can do that, then uh, he'll make some progress. Now, the question, of course, is, as everybody knows, is a massive public spending squeeze. So where's the money coming from? He acknowledges that the money isn't going to come from the public purse. And so he's got uh, what uh, the Tories uh, put forward in their manifesto at the election for what they call a rehabilitation revolution, and that's to use uh, private equity capital uh, to seed corn uh, and persuade and use the voluntary sector and private companies to up their game in providing uh, drug and alcohol uh, courses and other, other things that tackle people's roots of offending. Alan Travis. Elsewhere on the Guardian website, budget cuts could lead to 1.3 million more on the dole, according to Treasury figures. The full story at guardian.co.uk slash UK. Al Jazeera English is to launch on Freeview. Details at guardian.co.uk slash media and read up on your spy terminology guardian.co.uk slash world. Guardian Daily. News from The Guardian. Next, a British CEO could be extradited to America after his former chemical company admitted million-dollar bribes in order to sell toxic fuel additives to Iraq. Pollution from tetraethyl lead, TEL, can cause brain damage to children. Paul Jennings, who as chief executive until last year of the Octel Chemical Works near Ellesmere Port in Cheshire, and his predecessor, Dennis Kerrison, exported thousands of tonnes of the product. Both men deny involvement in bribery. TEL has long been banned in the West. Iraq is believed to be the only country in the world which still adds lead to its petrol. In Indonesia, a defensive lead campaign successfully delayed the phase-out of TEL for five years. The Guardian's investigative reporter, Rob Evans, is here with the latest. What's happened so far is, is that the company, as a corporate entity has admitted paying bribes to Indonesians uh, and uh, Iraqi officials. What the prosecutors in Britain and America are looking at now is whether or not there should be individuals who are also prosecuted. And they, the American prosecutors, have alleged that uh, two CEOs who are in charge of the company at different times were also knew about the uh, bribery and authorised it. And these two men who you talk about, who you name in your pieces, Paul Jennings and Dennis Kerrison, they're now working, one's got a, a wine estate in South Africa, the other one's a finance director of another company. Yes, that's right. I mean, what one, what, Dennis Kerrison was the uh, chief executive officer of this company uh, and left in 2005. He then went over to... Um, to run a wine estate in uh, in South Africa. He was replaced by an individual called Paul Jennings, who took over as the chief executive. 
Paul Jennings left last year, but he went off to be a very senior employee of uh, Biffa, which is a Birmingham-based company. What have they had to say about this potential extradition? Well, Dennis Kerrison denies that he ever was involved in any way in bribery. He says that he did not authorise bribes. And Paul Jennings said he could go, he could not comment because, in his words, there are currently investigations in the UK and the US into the conduct of a number of officials connected with the company. So at the moment, we must be very clear that these are allegations against them and that's what the prosecutors are looking at, is whether or not they ought to charge other individuals. And you can see Rob Evans's video of this story at guardian.co.uk slash film. Still to come, after quarter of a century, Larry King is to quit his talk show. It's time to hang up the nightly suspenders. Before that, now that England is out of the World Cup, there seems to be a growing support for the Ghanaian team as the sole representatives from Africa left in the tournament. This Friday, the team takes on Uruguay in the quarterfinals. The Guardian's David Smith is in Yeovil, Johannesburg, at a community centre called Ghana House. He's there to see how Ghana's progress is uniting some Africans and could help stop xenophobic violence when the tournament ends. This is Anthony Owuso, a teacher from Ghana who's lived in South Africa for 15 years. This is a history in the making. When Ghana won the game, the streets were blocked. For traffic, you see all the African nationals on the streets jubilating with flags of Ghana. Some block the road just to make sure people see that they are all behind Ghana. I'm joined by Safo Ababresi, the founding president of the Coalition of Supporters Unions of Africa. What are your emotions when you see a South African man cheering for Ghana, wearing the colours? It's amazing. It's simply amazing. They've actually come to understand, you know, that this World Cup is about Africa, not just about South Africa. And they have also shown as much passion in trying to solidify that ideal. The point is that when we started this Coalition of Supporters Unions of Africa, it was a bit difficult here in South Africa. And you can imagine that because this is a, a country that through years of apartheid has been trained or made to be inward-looking, and very suspicious of other African brothers crossing the border into this place. But finally, we have been able to eventually get the South African people to rally behind this one. And why is that happening in Africa, but it would be fairly unimaginable in Europe? It seems unlikely England fans are going to cheer for Germany, for example. This unity purpose is actually needed here in Africa. Africans have had a common destiny. Talk about slavery in the past, talk about colonialism, economic hardships and everything. We have gone through the same experiences as a people. Whether you are from Congo or you are from Namibia or you are from Mauritius, wherever, we have come through a common history and a common destiny. I'm walking through to the canteen where people are watching a rerun of a World Cup match and discussing Ghana's prospects on Friday. Ghana will win 1 0, totally 100%. Sharp. <laughs> you know, football these days is not what it used to be. You can't look down upon any nation now. You can see that this tournament is bringing a whole lot of surprises. And so we as Ghanaians are not afraid. 
There is a song we sing in Ghana. Wana beba e e, wana beba yinsru. Wana beba e, wana beba yinsru. America beba yinsru. Argentina beba yinsru. Australia beba yinsru. While people are living and breathing football right now, there are rumours that once the World Cup is over on the 11th of July, South Africa will see a return to xenophobic violence against foreign nationals who come here from the rest of Africa. Two years ago, more than 60 people died during violence in Alexandra Township in Johannesburg and elsewhere. It is feared that with the World Cup out of the way and South Africa suffering a hangover, these foreign nationals will be targeted again. I will ask Anthony and Safo what they think of these rumours. When a person sees a foreign national working or maybe progressing in life and he is not doing well economically, the person may think that you are the cause of his not progressing, which is not like that. They just need education. And how worried are you that xenophobia will return once the World Cup is over? With the sort of work we've done, we're not expecting that to happen. Actually, we've done a lot of public education. We've been on the South African media on a daily basis. We're getting South Africans to positively rally behind Ghana. We're launching an operation codenamed Bafana Bagana, and uh, that is what we're using to storm the stadiums on Friday to get Ghana to qualify for the next stage and beyond. And with this, we're getting South Africans to positively identify with the fortunes of Ghana. And with this, we're, we're actually breaking the boundaries of um, all the tendencies and all the myopic ideas that give birth to xenophobia. That report compiled by The Guardian's David Smith. Finally, it's claimed he's conducted more than 40,000 interviews. He's made it into the Guinness Book of Records for hosting the longest-running show on the same network in the same time slot. And he has an admirable collection of braces. Now, after 25 years, Larry King is to quit his TV talk show. Before I start the show tonight, I want to share some personal news with you. 25 years ago, I sat across this table from New York Governor Mario Cuomo for the first broadcast ever of Larry King Live. And now, decades later, I talked to the guys here at CNN and I told them I'd like to end Larry King Live, the nightly show that this fall and CNN has graciously accepted to agree to, giving me more time for my wife and I to get to the kids' Little League games. But for now, for here, it's time to hang up the nightly suspenders. The Guardian's Richard Adams, on the line from Washington, tells us why King has chosen to go. Well, he's just celebrated his 25th anniversary, so in some ways it might feel like it's a natural time to end. I mean, he's 76 years old, he's now on his seventh wife, and in the last six months his ratings have taken a real dive, and his show is now rated below the comparable shows that are on Fox News, which is Sean Hannity, uh, the same time slot, and uh, more surprisingly, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC, who's a, who's a liberal commentator. So what do you think is behind his longevity, or his stamina, if you're taking into account his wives? Partly, I think, because, you know, he was in on the ground floor with CNN. CNN was the first cable news network of its type, and it really was the, the template for, for what's followed for lots of others. In a crowded media environment, you know, he has a name and a brand name. And also, it has to be said, he, he got celebrities on his shows, partly because of his high ratings, of course, but also partly because he wasn't the most challenging interviewer. He was a very 
he's a very relaxed interviewer. He didn't really ask pressing questions. You, you, you weren't going to get, say, the Jeremy Paxman treatment if you went on Larry King. And what about career highs and career lows? Ironically, uh, his career high, if you go by ratings, and of course the television industry really is only interested in ratings, uh, his biggest viewership was uh, 16 million in 1992. And it was, believe it or not, a debate on a trade policy between uh, the young, then young Senator Al Gore and the presidential uh, candidate uh, Ross Perot. Ross Perot was uh, someone who was a wealthy businessman who, who ran for the presidency in 1992. And Larry King supported him heavily uh, in the sense that Perot went on King's show a number of times. And he gave Perot a visibility and, and possibly even a, you know, well, certainly a platform, but a credibility uh, that he enabled him to launch his presidential campaign. What do you think then, Richard, he's going to do next? He is staying at CNN, isn't he? Well, yes, he's staying at CNN. And I mean, he will do some specials. He, he did a telethon for the Gulf, uh, for Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico uh, last week. I mean, I imagine he'll do those sorts of things. He'll be an elder statesman. Americans are very fond of longevity. And he's sort of reached that position where he's an elder statesman, where he can just pop up and do things. I mean, the more interesting question is what CNN can do to uh, turn itself around. Who replaces him? Uh, There has been some rumour that Piers Morgan might be in the running. There was some truth to that rumour. There are various names being talked about including Katie Couric, uh, the, the news presenter. I, I mean, I find that hard to believe. Uh, personally, I think CNN would be well advised to uh, hire Jon Stewart from The Daily Show. You know, he's got a great following and he's a terrific interviewer. Larry King's, of course, had presidents and prime ministers on his show and also uh, it's been a bit of a confessional, hasn't it? Yes, I mean, most famously in the case of uh, George Michael, as uh, I'm sure most people remember. But there was also, going back, he had Frank Sinatra. um, He's had every American president since, I don't know, Abraham Lincoln. He has appeared himself in in movies playing himself. I mean, it was uh, alongside Oprah. Uh, it was it was the place where celebrities could go and they could be assured of of getting a, a, a fairly warm reception. Richard Adams, that's it for today's Guardian Daily. Producing today, Tim Maybe. I'm Mike Duran. Thanks for listening. And we leave you with Larry King's meeting with Jerry Seinfeld. Yes, 180 episodes. You gave it up, right? I did. So. They didn't cancel you. You canceled them. You're not aware of this? No, I'm asking you. You think I got cancelled? Are you under the impression I, that I, I got cancelled? I've hurt you, Jerry. I thought don't, that was pretty well documented. This is, a, shows is this still down. CNN? Don't, you were Do all you know who I am? <laughs> Jewish guy, Brooklyn. Yes. Okay. 75 million viewers. We'll be right back. Jeez. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world.